Take out your Bibles, please. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please find one under a seat in front of you in the rack there. Romans chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service if you don't own one at home. Romans chapter 2. We continue studying through this letter, and just as a, again, a, a Reminder to those of you who've been part of the study and perhaps even a brand new introduction to those of you just joining us today. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christian church in Rome. He'd never been there. He doesn't know most of the people who are going to receive it, but he has a, he has a deep love and compassion for them. And it's important just as a little reminder again that it is a letter. I, I did this yesterday. I timed myself reading from verse 14 of chapter 1 through the rest of chapter 1 as we talked before. That's kind of where Paul introduces verses 14, 15, 16, introducing the, the theme of the letter, if you would. I'm sorry, 16, 17, and 18. Um, the theme of the letter, the gospel of God, and to read through from there to the end of chapter one, it took me just under three minutes to read it, and it's taken us just over three weeks to cover it. <laughs> and I, I say that to point it out because it's easy for us to kind of get this broken up into segments as we're going through this. The letter, when it was received by the church in Rome there, as they were reading it, they would have read it all the way through. And that's important as we segue into today because the first word we see in chapter two is therefore. And as you Bible students know, whenever you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what's it there for? It's got, it, there's, a, there's a reason that this word is used in transition and it's easy for us to start today and say, well, we're gonna tie it directly back to what we finished off with last week. Well, if we read the letter as a letter, the therefore ties us back to the theme of the letter. As we sp explained from the outset and we'll continue to go back to this, the theme of the letter is the gospel of God, the good news of God because in the gospel of God, there is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes the power of God unto salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, and in that, in that part of that, as we explain it, the, the, the thing that's missing from that equation is the so what? What do I need to be saved from? And then we see that in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then Paul, from that moment in the letter until we get to chapter 3, verse 21, starts is speaking about the, the justification that God has for this wrath and speaking of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man. And by the time we get to that point in that transition in the letter, everyone stands guilty before a holy and righteous God. No one will be able to stand before God someday and say, on my own, I'm innocent. On my own, I am righteous. Again, it's the holiness of God, his standard. And, and as, we, as we look at this now and we begin, let's, let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, and look at the first couple verses together. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. 
But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Interesting little transition that takes place here. I don't know if you caught it, but as we've gone through the last couple of weeks in studying this, the the pronoun used was they, they, they. Notice how it switches in verse one of chapter two to you. It's so easy, and I, I, again, Paul is purposeful in doing this, no doubt, and we have to be careful of the trap we talked about at the end of our study last week to fall into that trap of the, of the Pharisee that went to pray in the temple. Remember that? We talked about that last week. Jesus told that parable. The Pharisee, he goes before God, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like those scoundrels, those swindlers, those liars, that tax collector over there but I tithe and I pray. I thank you that I'm like that. And then it focuses, Jesus focuses then on the, on the tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven, but beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the sinner. And Jesus said, that is the man who went home in a right relationship with God. He uses this, again, pointing this to you. And I guess as a a way to start this off, we will see as we go through this, and if you read it in its entirety, as I encourage you to do, especially even this section up to chapter 3, verse 20, you read this, you can definitely tell that the main thrust that he's talking to as a whole is to those that are lost. But we can never miss this, and Paul certainly wasn't just exclusively speaking to them. Even those as Christians, we have to hold this word up as a mirror to ourselves. Because it's easy for us, again, to get that perhaps uh, holier-than-thou attitude that says, again, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. I, I'm, I'm glad that, or that's distant in my past. I'm no, I no longer am, am dealing with those issues. Notice he says this, uses this term, those who practice the same things. And if we're not careful, we could say, well, I don't practice any of those things, so I'm good. His indictment comes against them. Not the fo- it's not the focus on the same. The word same there, it's things. <laughs> it's those things that are not pleasing to God. It's interesting in... First Samuel, if you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot this down and perhaps go back and read the, the, the chapter in itself. First Samuel 15, Saul, King Saul, is, is, has been given a command by God through the prophet Samuel to go and destroy the entire Am- Amalekite people. And he said, do not, do not leave anyone, no, no survivors, and do not take any spoil from it. Completely wipe them out. And then it tells us in verse, verse 10 and 11 that God then speaks to Samuel and says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. That's God's view. That is God's statement. He has not carried out my commands. Samuel then confronts Saul about this whole thing, and Saul's response was, I have carried out God's commands. He said, I did obey the voice of the Lord. This is in verse 20. And I went on a mission and on which the Lord sent me. Now, there's two words that Saul will use then, and these are the things that I, I guess I want to point out to us today as we look at this. The next word that, Paul, that Saul says to Samuel is and. 
There's no ends. <laughs> we don't get to add to what God tells us to do. There's no ends in the equation. It says, I did what God sent me to do, and. And what follows is his indictment, and I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He wasn't supposed to bring the king back. And then the other word follows that in verse 21, but. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep, oxen, choicest of the things devoted to destruction. And then he justifies it to sacrifice it to the Lord. Disobedience. Here's, here's the truth, guys, that we always need to know. Write this down, underline it, circle it, never forget it. Partial obedience is disobedience. If we can somehow think, justify in our own minds that I'm 90% I'm good with God, I, I'm following 90% of what he's telling me to do, and this other 10%, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's on my radar, I'll get to it. That's disobedience. We can deceive ourselves. Saul even thought, even though he adds and he puts a but in there, he said, I did obey the voice of the Lord. No, he didn't. God clearly said he didn't. I mean, we, we stand up, and what's the, what's the thing that we have to say if we're in a court of law? I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Guys, when it comes to following the Lord's word, we have to follow his word, his whole word, and nothing but his word. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to change it. We don't get to alter it. As a matter of fact, Paul then, and this is where I guess I'm, I'm coming to because we can say, well, I don't practice those things. I don't practice the same things and underestimate, again, the loftiness of God's holy standard and elevate ourselves in that process. Samuel goes on to say in 1 Samuel 15 here, he says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed better than the fat of rams. Verse 23 says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. In God's eyes, disobedience on our part is no different than idolatry. In God's eyes, in his holy, perfect standard. James tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. One sin, one sin brings unrighteousness to us. And I say that as an introduction to what we're looking at as we get into chapter 2, because what he's speaking of here, passing judgment, that's passing sentence on someone else, passing condemnation on someone else because of their actions, coming at it, making a determination from a, a critical, condemning spirit. Jesus addresses this same issue in Matthew chapter 7. He said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck, or better translation would be splinter, and I'll explain a little more on that in a moment, speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, 
let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. And then Jesus drops the H-bomb, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus, when he says, do not judge, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. James says it this way, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and for you note takers, write this in the margin, and you are not it. The one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Don't speak against. This is speaking again of slander, of gossip, of talking about one another. And guys, I, I say this because we have such a propensity in our flesh to judge what we see and what we hear. It's something that we all have to keep on that radar screen. It is so easy for us to slip into that. And guys, we have no business doing that. We are called to be a witness, not a lawyer or a judge. Our role is witnesses. But it's so easy for us to slip into that. But we can't because, guys, he says there's one lawgiver and judge, the one who knows all the things. Guys, we don't know. We don't know the whole situation. We never do. So many times we will hear something or even see something and we'll pass judgment, but we don't know the whole situation. And we don't know the individual's whole situation. We don't know their past. We don't know what they deal with. We don't know what their struggles are. And when we judge and we pass that judgment on them, we're saying that if I was in that same position, I would not. And we don't know that either. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and that's because there's only one who is truly righteous. If you have a King James Version, when we read verse 2 of Romans chapter 2, it says that the judgment of God is according to truth. Whose truth? His truth. And that's the point. Because, <laughs> to be totally honest with you, my judgment is based on my fickle, mood-induced truth. It all depends on how I happen to be feeling today and what mood I might be in and what just happened to me before and how I feel about breakfast and all of this other stuff is going Im- to influence my judgment because that's my truth. That's why I can't be a judge. And Jesus says this, interesting, when he says this, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If the same was true for you, would you want judgment or mercy? Let me answer that for you. You want mercy. (laughs) Nobody wants what's coming to them. Don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve. Please, don't ever ask him for that. We all want mercy. And James says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, it's important. We can't just leave this here. 
We, ha we have to understand what it is that Jesus is saying in its totality. Jesus isn't here giving a universal acceptance to any lifestyle or teaching. We are not, as Christians, to turn a blind eye to sin or ignore. We actually have a responsibility as Christians when another brother or sister stumbles or falls in, in, into sin. But the, 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 the thing that's being addressed is the way that we approach it. There's a right way and a wrong way. If we go in with a critical, judgmental attitude, that's the problem, that's the log, that's the issue. Jesus says, don't judge by appearance in John chapter seven, but use righteous judgment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.15, he who is spiritual appraises all things. That word appraises there is the same word that's used for judge in the others. Who is spiritual? I'm not using my own lens in this thing. It's interesting, again, Jesus using this illustration, it's, it's better translated splinter than speck because the, in the original language there, it's, it's, it's clear that both of the things are made out of the same material. And what's in your brother's eye is a splinter, what's in yours is a log. And isn't that so true if we're gonna be brutally honest that our sin looks so much worse on other people than it does on us? I, I came across this, this list. I, I found it humorous at first until it hurt a couple times. So I thought I'd share it with you. You're a liar. I'm simply stretching the truth. You cheat. I bend the rules. You lose your temper. I have righteous anger. You're a jerk. I'm having a bad day. You have a critical spirit. I bluntly tell the truth. You gossip. I share prayer requests. <laughs> you curse and swear. I let off steam. You're pushy. I'm intensely goal-oriented. You're greedy. I'm simply taking care of business. You stink. <laughs> I merely have an earthy aroma. Again, guys, the, the bottom line with this is this judgmental attitude we have to do away with. As, as Jesus says in this, take the log out, you will see clearly to take the speck or the splinter out of your brother's eye. That's what we're called to do as Christians, to come alongside one another, to help them, to help them identify this area in their life and to take the splinter out, help them take the splinter out of their eye. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't say the splinter in their ear or in their shoulder or in their finger, but their eye. The most sensitive part of your body to get a splinter in. I mean, if you ever get anything in your eye, I mean, you're completely incapacitated, right? You're walking, ah, so sensitive. You gotta identify the log, get rid of that, because the splinter needs to come out. And the right way, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter six, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, note, in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You who are spiritual, spiritually discerning and spiritually responding in the spirit of gentleness. That's the right way. The wrong way, Paul is outlining for us here in Jesus' addresses. In verse three, again, he brings it very, very strongly. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Escaping the judgment of God, that's kind of the summary of salvation. As we've talked about back in in verse 18, the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. You somehow think that you're going to escape that simply by being better than them, by by doing these right things in your life and and being able to say, well, I'm, I'm better than they are. Even the ultra-religious will not escape the judgment of God, only the righteous. And the Bible tells us all of our own righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It is his righteousness and his alone. Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There is so much misguided thinking about the characteristics, the holiness of God. He says, do you think lightly of these things? That's to underestimate, to undervalue them. And if we somehow in our lofty understanding of ourselves, place that that God is responding to our goodness, we're devaluing his goodness. This this word that's used here, the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, that word riches is where we get our word plethora. His abundance, his kindness, his kindness, his goodness, that speaks of his grace, the blessings that he gives. Guys, we can never, never talk too much about God's grace. We can never focus too much on God's grace. Grace is that those blessings that we receive even though we do not deserve them. And it's not just to us as believers. The Bible is clear that God extends these blessings, this grace. Jesus said his, the Father's son, S-U-N, shines on the good and the evil. He sends his rain to the, the unrighteous as well as the righteous. God's blessing. Psalm 100 verse five, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. His kindness, his grace. Next, his tolerance or his his forbearance. That's that's his mercy. That's the, the judgment that he withholds. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Holding back judgment. This word that's translated here is often used in, in, in the, the case of like a ceasefire where there's two warring parties and there's an agreement to temporarily stop fighting until we can work out a permanent peace agreement. But it is not the peace agreement. It's kind of an agreement to hold off 
until the permanent peace agreement can be reached. I just learned this this week. Most of you in the room probably know this, but do you realize we never signed a peace treaty in the Korean conflict back in the 50s? They just had this little agreement that we're gonna stop fighting until the peace agreement can be worked out. The peace agreement was never worked out. I think that's kind of interesting today. But it's not the same as peace. God in his mercy is holding back judgment so that there can be peace. In Romans 5, Paul tells us this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the ability to have this, this peace is, has, has been offered to everyone through Jesus. We have that peace. It's solidified forever for those who believe. And the third element that's here, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his, his tolerance. Notice thirdly, his patience, his long suffering. This is the time that he allows as he extends his grace and his mercy. And there's a purpose behind it. As Paul tells us here, his kindness leads to repentance. It does not force it, but it leads individuals. It leads all to the opportunity to repent, to turn to turn from their sinful ways and to turn to the Lord and to basically, if you would, to put their name then on the peace treaty that Jesus has purchased for everyone. Peter says this in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Paul dealing with the, the self-righteous religious, if you would, group here, saying that none of that is going to stand up. In, in your own judgment of others, you judge yourself. And you take lightly the riches of God's kindness and his mercy, his grace that he's extended to you. And he continues in verse five, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment upon all of mankind is righteous. As we've as we said before, his standard is perfect and holy. No one can ever stand before and say, I met that. I lived up to that. Who, verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress, note, for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But... Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. There's no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or non-Jewish. When he says the Jew first and also the Greek, that he's encompassing everyone, either Jewish or not. And next week as we continue, if should, should the Lord tarry, we're going to get specifically into some things addressing the Jewish people. But here he's covering with a blanket statement all people. There's no partiality. But if we were to just read this section alone, what doesn't it sound like there's a way that you can earn your way to heaven by being good? 
Doesn't it say that? But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. That's, again, why I underscore the fact that this isn't something that we can just study in little sections. You have to take it in its totality because Paul is writing this letter, and that's why if you're a Bible student and you study the Word of God, you have to take it always in context. Look ahead to verse chapter 3, verse 9. As Paul completes this section, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, note, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside, note, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul said, that we will all be judged according to our deeds. Evil, wicked will be judged. If good, yes, but then he clearly says, but there's none good. There is none good. He's speaking of a day of, of judgment that will come in the righteous wrath of God being, being put forward. He's speaking of a day that is yet to come. If you're relatively new or perhaps never been a student of the Bible, you may not know this fact. One-third, approximately, of the Word of God is prophetic. It speaks of things yet to come when it was written. There's over 1,800 prophetic statements in the Bible. And if I were to ask you, if you're skeptical at all about the Word of God and those types of things... What percentage would you, would you put on something before you would think that it was reliable enough to trust in it? If, if, uh, if somebody was 75% accurate in making their predictions about the stock market or whatever it might be, would you put your trust in that person? Would you give them your money and let them invest it for you? I would. 75%. That's pretty good. You're going you're gonna to make money in that deal. What about 80? What about 90? Well, the word of God is clear. Unless, it, unless prophecy is 100% accurate, you get rid of it. If, there is, if a prophet makes a prophetic statement and it does not come true, the Bible says that prophet is to be put to death. And holding, God holding his own word up to that standard would say that if anything that my word says doesn't come true, you can disregard it. Well, the amazing thing is every prophecy that has ever been, that is made in the word of God, that has had its time come, every one has been fulfilled, 100% accurate, including dates and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it, and we cover those as we go through the word of God together. I say all of that to say because this date that Paul is talking about is recorded for us. That's the other great thing about the word that we're holding. Guys, we have the end of the book. We know how this is all going to come out. And if you turn with me to the end of the book, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, John records as, as he sees, as he's been given this, this glimpse into what is going to take place. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
Jesus here sitting on his throne, and this great white throne is a throne of judgment. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, note, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, note, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, a day that is coming. Prophesied that it will happen. Where everyone, and it speaks of the dead here, will stand before Jesus on his holy, in all of his holiness, in all of his righteousness, the dead speaking to those who have never been born again. And notice it speaks of these books. Every deed, everything, every action, every word, every motive, every intention. Back in Romans, it tells us that even the secrets all those things that they thought they got away with, all those things where they said nobody saw that, nobody could ever prove that, the evidence will be laid out completely and totally. And here's the bad news. This is what I like to call the inconvenient truth. No one will escape that. No one. No one standing on their own. You will not be able to stand before a holy and righteous God and say, I'm innocent. All of the evidence is there. The books will be open. And there's no plea that says, you know what? I'm better, better than that person. I didn't do those things. And the other, the other part of this bad news, the inconvenient truth at that time is it's too late. This isn't, this isn't a, a trial for anything else. This is the sentencing hearing. You've already been declared guilty. But the good news, the good news, the gospel of God, and that's again Paul's entire point of this letter. But he, 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 he writes it in such a way that we all have to stand in this moment. That we have to say, okay, I'm guilty. But the good news, the gospel of God, is that in the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's simply a matter of believing. Believing that you can't do anything about it, accepting, confessing your sin before a holy and righteous God that says, I am a sinner. I stand, I'm guilty. Confessing your sin before God, but then confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus, God, tells us in, in his word, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus stepping off of his throne, coming, becoming one of us, living the perfect, sinless, righteous life that we are required to live but don't, he did. And then hanging on the cross, shedding his perfect blood for us, paid the debt entirely. 
That's the inconceivable truth. But you have to receive it. You have to accept it. It's the inconceivable truth, but guys, it's the only truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. There's no other way. And some say, well, that's narrow-minded. That's, you know, whatever. Okay. But there's a way. It is narrow. Jesus doesn't apologize for that. He says the way is narrow. There aren't many on it. But you can be on it today. If you've never taken that step, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, trusted in his, his completed work and that alone for your salvation, today can be the day that you are forgiven. Today is the day that, that you can know that you are saved, that you have eternal life. But it does come, it does come at a cost. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to lay your life down. You're gonna have to say all of this, all of this, my own attempt at righteousness, all of my own attempts to somehow be good enough, I'm gonna have to put that down because no matter how hard I try, I'm not. And Jesus, I surrender my life to you. You wanna do that today, I wanna give you that opportunity in a moment. But for the rest of us here, again, we need to guard ourselves against that temptation that says, you know what, I'm already there, so I'm good. Yes, we are, praise God. But our lives need to reflect that. And if there's anything in us, and I, like I said, I went through this this week, and, and as I've told you before, God deals with me, and there's some times of, ooh, that, that, that kind of hurts. Okay, God, I, I gotta deal with that. There's, there is an area in my life that I need to deal with, and, and I don't like to suffer in that alone, so I'd like to share it with you. <laughs> and so if God is, God's poking you a little bit, perhaps about being you know, judgmental in certain areas or, or looking at others in, in such a way in, in, that's not in a gentle, com, you know, compassionate spirit towards them or, or whatever it might be. Let us never, let us never, never, never undervalue God's grace and his mercy and his long suffering toward us. Would you please stand? Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we again, we stand here today in awe of you. Lord, every one of us, as we stand here and we, we hold your, your perfect law, your holy requirements before us, Lord, every one of us comes to that place and we say, God, I... I'm a sinner. I don't measure up to that. No matter how much I want to, and no matter how much I try, God, I, I desperately need you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your, for your grace, for your mercy, for your patience, for your love that you continue to extend toward us and lavish upon us. You're here today and you've never, never taken that step. You've never, you've never received the gift that is right before you. It's, it's not a matter of jumping through a bunch of hoops. It's, the Bible is clear. It's a matter of believing. 
It's a matter of confessing your sin, which is going before God and saying, I agree with you, God, I'm a sinner, and I deserve your judgment. But Jesus, I believe you took that judgment, that you took the wrath of God upon yourself. I don't understand all of this, but I understand I need a savior. I understand I can't do this. I've tried and I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of somehow earn my way. Jesus, I give up. I surrender. Come into my life right now. Forgive me of my sin. Wash my sin away. And, and I make this decision right now. I give you my life. Give me that, that peace that peace with God, and then the peace of God that passes understanding. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, as we continue this morning in our worship of you, would you just, would you just meet us each right where we are in this space that we're in? We thank you for your gentle way of dealing with us. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We worship you together this morning in Jesus' name.